Coming up on The Movie Court. Get this over with. <laughs> right, let's get this going. Movie court. All right, welcome to Movie Court. This court is in session, and today we are hearing a case against Easy Rider. Uh, I want to run into the synopsis for this movie for our listeners who haven't seen this movie. Two counterculture bikers travel from Los Angeles to New Orleans in search of America. Does it get any more 60s than that? <laughs> in search of a narrative. <laughs> in search of a haircut. Hey, you guys, is there any plot over here? Anybody got a plot? No plot. Okay, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Woo! You're such a square for needing a plot. I also feel like I, I uh, and I've never done this before, and even though the term itself is incredibly irritating to me, I'm going to put a spoiler warning on this episode. Here's my spoiler alert. This movie is endlessly boring and nothing fucking happens except for montages of grown fucking men riding bicycles. It is amazing to me that uh, I was almost giving this movie somewhat of a pass in terms of its script because I was like, well, it's just Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda uh, making shit up as it went along. But then apparently Terry Southern was uh, attached to this and I was like, oh, there supposedly was a script for the movie that we're watching. They had a script and then they used it to roll a joint and smoked it and then and they said, well, we have all this film and cameras and hair. He he was given a screenwriting credit, but the editor who turned a 220-minute cut of this movie into the version that you see was only given an editorial consultant credit on the movie. Give me a, a, a whack at it. I'll, I'll cut it down to 88 seconds. You know, not many people know this. It was actually edited in camera. They didn't really need an editor. It was all done. It was all filmed with a GoPro attached to Dennis Hopper's mustache. I think it was accidental. Like The camera maybe running. I don't know. We'll we'll find out, I suppose. Accident, accidental is a good word for a lot of this. Uh, okay, so let's uh, let's move into our opening remarks. Steve Kruger, our prosecutor, is bringing Easy Rider up for prosecution, claiming, much like its two characters, it's been on the lam. I'd like to say something about Easy Rider, and, and I'd like to speak to the fact that people are afraid of this movie. They are afraid to speak ill of this pile of crap. For some reason, they think it's an important movie. Indie film ding-dongs have anointed this poop as important. People need to be freed from this bondage, free to speak their minds of this loose, meandering horseshit. It's a bad film, period. It doesn't know what it wants to say, and yet it's constantly yelling what it wants to say. It has no sense of pacing, of structure, of story, of purpose. It's a drugged-up, hippie fever dream, a story told among dopers by a bonfire under the influence of weed. Like a sober person at a party, the viewer watches these weirdos spout nonsense like it's important. This film needs to go away for the crime of pretending to be important. And hopefully one day, years after imprisonment, it can return to us as what it really is. A pretentious film student's bloated, self-important, indulgent, nonsensical, sprawling spool of film stock, music, and words. Uh, wonderful. Um, the defense attorney, Kyle Bornheimer would now like to respond with his opening remarks. Kyle? I, I think Steve just just might have sold the movie uh, f for audiences. And he did, he did bring up something that we're going to hear a lot of today. And, and ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I hope 
I hope you like context, cultural context in particular, because we're going to be talking a whole lot of sexy, podcast-killing cultural context in this episode. And speaking of this context, you know, I was going to start off my defense by reading a passage from Peter Biskin's uh, seminal book of the, uh, on the American film renaissance of the 60s and 70s called Easy Riders Raging Bulls. And then I decided maybe I shouldn't read for it for a variety of reasons, but the book is literally called Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, deemed so important that Easy Rider is considered the very impetus for the movement that allowed writers and directors to run Hollywood for a whole decade and ultimately bring us Robert Altman, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Hal Ashby, Milos Forman, Brian De Palma, Spielberg, Lucas, a seasoned Lamette, a seasoned Peckinpah, Nicholas Rogue, Bob Raffleson, George Rohill, Paul Schrader, William Freakin, Robert Town. So, yes, as expected, you will hear a lot about context today. And besides that, what, what horrible crimes has it committed that Prosecutor Kruger, Prosecruger, I'm going to call you Prosecruger, has felt the need to bring this with extreme prejudice, I might add, before this court. But I am confident that in addition to defending its very real cultural significance, I can also defend this film on its own cinematic merits. I close my statements of openingness. <laughs> your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your uh, Honor. We'll sidebar, move. sidebar, yes. sidebar. <laughs> approach the bench, approach the bench. Hold on. Don't I get any points for brevity in my opening statement? I, I, I feel like I really get a, a tight little paragraph together, and, and he just rambles. Don't no, I get... I've, had some, I've had some tight ones. You've got a sidebar with both people. You can't sidebar alone. There's no such thing as a lone sidebar. How many fake courts have you been to, sir? I went to law school at University of Phoenix online. I didn't do so good. Can we start shitting on the movie now? I'm getting bored. <laughs> Please, diarrhea flow. Oh, well, first of all, I, the opening is, I don't know, 30 minutes of guys riding motorcycles to uh, Born to be Wild. And I was wondering if Vincent Gallo had built a time machine and directed this sequence because it was the brown bunny, you know, speaking of uh, indie filmmaking. Uh, except no one got a blowjob from Chloe Sevigny. But it well, we can get into the fact that there's four women in this movie. Two of them are wives to the commune leader, and the other two are prostitutes. A movement in conflict with itself, a very interesting portrayal. Yeah, freedom, but not for those people. And that was one of the big things about a lot of the movements of the 60s, the counterculture movement. Uh, its inability to figure out uh, within itself. It left out a lot of people. Exactly. Uh, I'm sorry, but... Steve, continue, Steve. Oh. Now, I don't dislike the 60s or hippies. It's before my time. This was the, the film that allowed the young generation to go to the theaters and see themselves, man, like long hair and groovy b bullshit and whatever. But I feel like this is a hippie exploitation movie. I feel like it doesn't know what it wants to do. It's just, it's meandering, flailing around. And also, Dennis Hopper, I know you're not listening because you're not with us anymore, but... He wasn't with us uh, while he was with us. He, I don't think he was ever with us. I believe he died in 1953, but, you know... The great, the great British actors, the the stage greats, the you know the uh, Laurence Olivier's, they would they would take a, a belt of scotch before they hit the stage. 
Uh, I think weed, cocaine, and LSD are not what one needs to, uh, to, to transport someone into another character as an actor. I'm not an actor myself, but I, I just, you can just tell that he's not there. He's somewhere else. I just sat there staring through the movie, bored out of my mind, wondering, well, this must be like when non-stone people listen to The Grateful Dead. And I, you know, well, if you're on drugs, it makes sense. All I was thinking was, off in the distance in that desert, what if Immortan Joe rode up with them with his <laughs> war boys and just lit them both on fire? And then, then it became it became Fury Road, and I'd be so happy. I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm in my happy place. <laughs> you want Fury Road to invade every movie, which is kind of an awesome idea, actually. It's the greatest movie ever made. Why didn't these dudes make Fury Road as some allegory? Easy to- Rider, Fury Road. By the way, did you guys happen to see Easy Rider, The Ride Back? I'm going to defend that next week. Uh, You know, this is a very hard film to look back on because we've been filled with so much over the last 50 years. But there's quite a bit in here that really was new. Like I said, I I wanted to not only talk about context here, but... No, you should answer your own question. What was new that this movie... they, They had not come up with boring montages before this movie? Oh, what was I mean, new? The, the use of the use of, of pop music like that was new. The idea of a soundtrack connected to a film and pop music and the music that people are listening to. I mean, it's like the lineup of Woodstock on this in this movie was new. He wasn't the only one doing it. It wasn't the only film, but it was one of a few that was doing it and doing it like that. And it was both important to the audience that it was aimed at, important to reflect what people were doing and going through at that time. And also it was important for the film industry, both from a cynical standpoint of like, yeah, let's sell soundtracks, to what films could now do a soundtrack. And for at least 30 years, a pop soundtrack and a good soundtrack was as important as anything else in a film. And this, mo- this movie was definitely, it's easy to make fun of Born to be Wild now. This movie kind of is almost the opening credits to the 70s. And when that, when that, after they make their weird drug deal with, with Phil Spector, they, um, that, that's when that song kicks in, it's like the opening of the 70s. It's, it's interesting too that, um, there's no dialogue in the first five minutes of this movie, which I had never remembered. No, I'm sure Dennis forgot to hire the sound. <laughs> well, guy. no, but I, specifically the drug deal, which is all played silently, very coolly too, against the backdrop of the uh, LAX planes coming in and out. No, and of it's LAX. and it's bizarre. Like, who the fuck is Phil Spector playing? He's got this weird case that he's putting this stuff in. He's got this weird manhandler. Um, oh, but for a brief moment, there's an exciting movie that might happen. Like, a, like Phil Spector, the drug deal is going to go bad. And Taran- like a Tarantino heist gone wrong movie's going to happen. Nope, we're hitting the road and we're just going to do some drugs. See you later. Smell you later. Cue up the hippie tunes. There's so much swirling culturally and, and in the film world around this movie, so much about what the world that it presents and how it presents it that was so fresh to audiences of the day that if you went into a coma a mere four years before this movie was made. Oh, I, I did, somewhere in Act 2. God, God. The and defense you, played right into the prosecution. Yeah, I like to do that. And if you went into, you know, if you woke up and went to the movie theater and this was playing, you you wouldn't know where you where you landed. And you would be you would beg to be put back in the coma. It's a, it's a movie bursting with a desire to be. And I, I love that kind of urgency. I love the connection between an artist's urgent desire to say something and an audience's desire to see and hear it. I actually don't think Hopper was really became a great artist, ironically, until the 80s. But you cannot deny the urgency to, uh, uh, for self-expression in this movie. One thing that is undeniable about this era is that there was a shit-fucking-load of talented people 
bursting with things to say and a shitload of people their age wanting to see those things on film and that's why the era produced so many memorable movies and bringing us back to Easy Rider specifically the gateway drug so to speak of, of the 70s film movement every independent film we saw in the 90s every independent film we saw before that is because of, of Easy Rider and films like Easy Rider not only Easy Rider but a big deal of it was literally they gave it and I was reading Julia Phillips uh, book about this look up Julia Phillips read her book uh, you'll never have lunch in this town again she was an amazing producer of this time and she talks about going to the screening of Easy Rider and saying eh, it was you know it was goofy I didn't really like it but it's going to make a shitload of money she predicted how well it was going to do and she said and literally the next morning the studios gave the keys to the directors they started letting uh, first time directors direct more they started letting actors write and direct they started getting out of the way and letting artists coming up with difficult challenging material write produce and direct that material on their terms because this movie made made money Wow, very good. Uh, okay, Steve, your next point, sir. Jesus Christ. As as Mr. Bornheimer often does, he is a <laughs> long-winded nostalgist. He wishes to be a part of a different era. And I am not putting the 60s on era and I'm uh, on trial. I am not putting indie film on trial. I'm putting this movie and how fucking bad it is on trial. And he never responded to my charge that it, it is a movie that people feel like they have to love. And it, you, I want to free them of that. I am thinking of the young film uh, lover who watches this and does, is afraid to say to their their friends, that was a pile of crap that was just made to exploit the hippies. Yes, it had unintended consequences, i.e. Dennis Hopper's million-dollar-a-day cocaine habit for the next decade. <laughs> yes, they made a lot of indie movies because this little crappy, hippie, nonsense, Wizard of Oz bullshit, you know, hit with the hippies. That's fine. I, I'm not putting that on trial. I'm putting the movie on trial. I don't care, care what Pauline Kael or Sandy Duncan or Duncan Hines or whatever whatever <laughs> fucking books you think you understand. Oh, my God. I totally want to know what Sandy Duncan thinks of this movie now. What I'd like to also do is I'd like to call a, a, a character witness to the stand. Uh, I, call, I call to the stand Jeffrey Lebowski. <laughs> All right. Step forward, sir. Your revolution is over, Mr. Lebowski. Condolences. The bomb's lost. <laughs> Definitely, uh, I think that the dude from uh, The Big Lebowski would have loved this movie. It, it is true counterculture claptrap. It's hippie ploitation. It's long-haired twaddle. Uh, I took nothing from the movie. I learned nothing about the 60s other than we blew it, man. And then another music montage set to mo motorcycles driving. I really think that when Peter Fonda said that line, he had just seen an early cut of this movie, and he was telling Hopper, <laughs> we blew it, man. Ooh, well played, prosecution. I mean, the, even the LSD sequence is endless, it's, and, and nothing happens. And, and then it leads to, guess what? Hang in there, kids, if you're scoring at home, another driving montage. I mean, it, it's, just, it, it's just nonsense. Let's get in the car and, oh, look, there's Jack Nicholson. And in 30 years, he's going to uh, ask Laura Flynn Boyle to bleach her asshole. Great. <laughs> and then he, he hangs out for a little while. Anyway, what, are we, what, what movie are we doing here? Is it what, Corman piece of shit? I'm making a note. That's a, that's a point for the prosecution, just deep knowledge. <laughs> deep knowledge of, of what Jack Nicholson likes to look at a, at a lightly pink asshole. Um, you said earlier, I forgot which Bornheimer, because you, ble you bleed into one voice in my ear, but this movie started the 70s, and the 70s is my favorite era in filmmaking. And I, I sat there, 
at hour two of this movie, nothing happened. And then they get shot, which is just a cop out for no reason. But I believe that that's how the movie should have started. And the rest of the movie should have been Smokey and the Bandit, <laughs> which is the 70s version of Easy Rider, a far better movie, much better music and the same mustaches. Well, it's interesting that the, the 70s started with a an experimental, um, hey, man, let's just put the camera on our shoulders and see what we get film and ended with a formulaic, shitty road movie with Burt Reynolds laughing at all the jokes that is uh, that that Dom DeLuise tells him. That might actually be the story of the 70s right there. By the 70s, the, the, the studios had gotten back the system. And I, and I think I'll take a rough around the edges, easy rider over a perfect uh, smoking the bandit any day. Um, I know I probably just made a lot of enemies there because I have a lot of friends that are huge Smoking the Bandit fans. And I do love a, a, a gum-chomping Burt Reynolds laughing at his own shtick. So let me, you know, uh, I, I look forward to, to answering this thing, on a, uh, this film on its, own, on its own merits. I understand that context only gets you so far, and I think that's why this movie is fun to talk about. And Kruger, you just sort of talked a little bit about why they get killed, about, oh, you know, hippies ruin the American dream, which I'm not quite sure is the point of it. I think there's a couple little statements made within this film, both in lines of dialogue and just in the, in the film's existence about what, what the counterculture movement was. And what this movie does is capture the counterculture movement at a very teetering spot. Like an animal documentary, except for nothing happens. The hippie. If animals did, did cocaine and, and, <laughs> and sat by fires and talked about stars and shit. Well, if, if I were to, if I, if I were to, you know, I'll get to the, some of the points that you made here in, in a second. I mean, as I'm defending my, my client, I want you to look at my client, uh, Your Honor. You know, unwashed and unkempt, probably stoned. Uh, at his worst, my client is a tad... Hold on, one of the cocaine the boogers in Dennis Hopper's beard has become sentient. Exactly. He's just a little <laughs> bit coked up. This, at, at the worst, my client is just sometimes a little too coked up. And that's the biggest mistake this movie ever makes, in my opinion. That it's that it's uh, it's an it's a coke booger on the coke face booger. of uh, film history. <laughs> side note: I, I do want to take a sidebar real quick because if you both heard the story about Neil Young showing up for the last waltz and that they had to somehow eliminate the cocaine booger in his nose from the footage of the I've m- seen it at the Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame in Cleveland. It's behind it's behind Lucite. <laughs> they have they have his coat. There's mustache. a whole wing <laughs> that, that travels. He blew it out at the mid, in the middle of uh, the weight and it stuck to uh, Jody Mitchell Joni Mitchell's side mustache. I don't know how someone can do so much cocaine and make such boring sad music. I would think he would Hey, let you know what? Let's pick it up a beat. Let's let's you know 2 3 4 Nope, Neil Young is not on trial here. Um, <laughs> Any more coke? <laughs> David Lee Roth looks like he's on cocaine. When I think cocaine, I think David Lee Roth. I don't. Neil Young. Well, that's how I, cool. I, that's I don't, how cool Neil is, man. Even when he was uh, hopped up on coke, he could. He was still easy I think going. The, man. But David Lee Roth was not. I think he was just organic cocaine in. Yeah, actually, ironically, David Lee Roth never did cocaine. David Lee Roth is the embodiment of cocaine. Okay, so, uh, so Kyle, continue. In, in, in a general sense, the the. The, the only mistake this movie ever makes is being somewhat aimless and dull at points. That's, that's the biggest mistake it makes at points. It, 
It's an experiment in DIY filmmaking, in getting a bunch of money to go just film America, man. Strap a camera on our shoulder and let's see what we get. It's a film that sometimes doesn't know what it wants to do or say. So it just has a bunch of shots of bikes on freeways or long hairs walking along rivers while Freedom Rock plays in the background. And when it stops to the, the action to visit a town to have uh, tense interactions with the, with the local yokels, which are often amusing scenes, especially if Nicholson is a part of them, the composition of those scenes are often a little rough around the edges. Yeah, guys, I think I lost my ass. Appetite. All right, let's go. I'm I'm gonna go find a pre a, a prenatal Laura Flynn Boyle and check out her ass. Yep. White <laughs> is the driven. The snow. prosecution. You, you've made your point about uh, Laura Flynn Boyle's anus. We will no longer hear any points related. I'd like to call her to the stand. I'd like to call Laura. You're Flynn badgering Boyle's Laura Flynn Boyle's anus, anus now. Now, sidebar, sidebar, sidebar. You know. Wait, 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 wait! I'm not up there yet. Okay. Okay, we'll come back. Hold your thoughts, Steve. And by the way, you know, I mentioned rough around the edges. I don't mind a little rough around the edges, especially when it's it's done by the likes of Laszlo Kovacs and Terry Southern and Jack Nicholson and Dennis Hopper. Because you might have something there every once in a while. Now, these are very stoned, Laszlo Kovacs, Terry Southerns, Jack Nicholson's, Dennis Hopper's. But so those, what I've just alluded to just there, are the minor infractions that my client has committed. So let me tell you now what this film gets right. Its portrayal of the counterculture movement, it gets right. I think this movie gets a strong B+. for its portrayal of the counterculture, big 70s Bush and all. Now, you know, I, of course, I was born in 1975, so what the hell do I know, really? But, I, you know, let's just say that I know what I'm talking about, and, and I, I believe it's a, it's a strong B+. And what's important about that is because those behind and in front of the camera that represented this culture were members of it themselves. The actors, writers, and producers, they were all true believers and practitioners. It wasn't a movie made by a bunch of suits thinking this is what kids wanted to see. It wasn't, which I think, Kruger, you've been trying to make the point that it was kind of, that it was uh, hippie exploitation, which maybe some of the people that gave them money was, but the people that made it and the people that, uh, uh, um, that saw it weren't seeing it that way. It was also important because it didn't shy away from things. People have to remember what was still taboo in, uh, in 1969 to see in, in movies. And Easy Rider was one of the movies, certainly not the only, but one of those movies that had, in, in that era, had language, had drug use, had mu- rock music, had sex, nudity, violence, things that a decade before, even six or seven years ago, were virtually unheard of. Now, I'll admit that, you know, may- other than maybe looking their parts <clears throat> and being super groovy, man, I always somewhat struggled with what Hopper was doing with Captain America and Billy Kidd in this, or if I'm or if I'm supposed to get anything. Oh, about that was it. my other question. Is oh, sorry to interrupt. Does Peter Fonda just suck? No, I don't think he's a good actor, and he cuts an interesting figure in this movie, and he actually kind of works for this movie. And I'll tell you why in, in, in a very. I'm Steve, you don't want to weigh in on this. I just opened the door for you to rip on Peter Fonda, and yet you did not. Uh, ironically, walk through that door. ironically, Kruger's a huge Peter Fonda fan. It's it's going to be the only. I'm sorry, thing I'm watching uh, the the Blu-ray of Fury Road on my computer. I zoned out. What, what are we talking about? I I didn't I didn't even know Peter Fonda was in the movie. I I it. We're we're talking about Easy Rider, gentlemen, not Fury Road. (laughs) 
Who knows if the acting is good or not? There's no story. There's no plot. There's no characters. There's no, there is a story right now. That just in the visage of these characters, just in the the personage of, of the characters, in, in, you know, I, I think there is something very interesting in just watching these go around and in capturing a moment and capturing. Your Honor, a Your Honor, Your Honor, proper, Your Honor. Proper, have we not been down this road with Mr. No, Bornheimer this is part of the film. This is again. part of the film. This is part of why the film works, not just context. Hopper presents both sides of an important American movement. The counterculture movement. On one hand, you have Fonda. He's the one putting the flower in the soldier's rifle. On the other hand, you have Hopper. He's the one giving the soldier the middle finger. Just in seeing these two interact with each other and others, the way Hopper is belligerent and the way that Fonda is trying to, to, to be peaceful and, and sweet with everyone is one of the major dynamics of that movement and one of the why the movement didn't perpetuate because it couldn't figure out what it wanted to be because both are kind of right and both are kind of wrong. And the presence of Fonda alone, brother to Jane, son to Henry, an American family that a lot of people knew a lot about. About, a family whose dynamics reflected a lot of families of that time, playing out in Hollywood and in films, and that's what film can do sometimes. Fonda doesn't have to be a great actor. The film doesn't have to be great, great. It can still be a great time capsule to capture something important. And this film, a film in which, while Hopper takes particular aim at the squares and the rednecks and seems to be interested in portraying a country in cultural conflict, he is also portraying a movement at a crossroads. The most idealistic elements of this movement will indeed die off. It will indeed fold in on itself under the weight of its own lofty ideals. The commune in the movie is not doing well. That's what's portrayed. The acid trip they take is a is a bad one. So the film is not saying that all is perfect in hippie land. I mentioned the sense of urgency to express and how many films of the time had that urgency. You see it now in television, the, this great urge to, to express. It's a pretty laid back movie. It expresses itself in a very laid back way, but it's very urgent at the same time. It has to be seen. It wants to be seen and people out there want to see it. It's, it's almost like those that were intent on experimenting at that time with their life differently. The way of doing things different. You don't bother us, we won't bother with you. That's kind of how the movie plays. Then every once in a while, like its stone characters, little bursts of dialogue come out here and there. You mentioned the line about we blew it. It's a really important line. <clears throat> And it's an important line that in that book, Julia Phillips, who saw the screening, mentioned as the only as the moment in the in the movie that really did speak to her and why oh this movie's really going to play with people. I don't think anyone's going to argue the merits of this as a screenplay. This isn't a screenplay-driven movie. But after meandering around, checking out the American landscapes, sharing di dinner with communers. There's a little piece of dialogue that will come out, hanging her out around the fire, Fonda mentioning how they blew it. So much packed into that, into that line. The piece of dialogue about just wanting to do my thing in my time. These things just sort of come out of nowhere, no, uh, come out of nowhere within a rambling seam, which is exactly how it should be for a movie like this, because it's a stoner movie. It is a movie designed to be watched while stoned, and that's how these things pop up amidst the hazy, idealized dreamscape of the hippie's imagination, so often fleeting and unfocused, come these moments of clarity and articulate expression, and that's how they pop out of this movie. You're kind of bobbing your head along saying, yeah, that's groovy, man. It doesn't often go into the cartoonish. It once or twice goes into, like, where they explain what right-on means. But most of the time, the, sitting with the film, sitting at the very teetering moment that Hopper captured in the movement, it reminded me of Hunter S. Thompson's eloquent passage about the high-water mark left by the movement from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the novel. And by the way, speaking of underrated movies, the Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing Las Vegas and the scene where Johnny, Reed, Johnny Depp reads that passage is one of my favorite scenes from the last 20 years. Your Honor, 
Is that his closing argument? I mean, come on. No, that was just that was, I, that was just I, point two. I, right? I didn't even got to Nicholson. No, he's grandstanding. He's not. He's not making arguments. He is. He just is. Just everyone chill out in this courtroom. Well, I'd like to respond to one of the eighty thousand points he made in his uh, grandstanding <laughs> speech. That he, he, he said it's it's a time capsule. It is not a time capsule. It is a badly staged student play with Hey, man, it's not groovy to smoke pot. Yeah, man, it is. Oh, that was a great scene. I really felt you there, Carl. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. All right, I'll see you in chemistry. If you so want to see a piece of filmmaking from that era that captures that era, see Medium Cool. It's very simple. Go see a good movie that captures the hippie movement, the 60s. Don't see this bloated piece of shit. End of sentence. <laughs> see how easy that was, Kyle? You just You just come up with a little point and then you end it. I'm not indicting the 60s. I'm not indicting the hippie movement. I'm indicting this movie for its value and and how people perceive its value. It is not a good movie. It's not a good uh, it's not a good slice of life of the hippie movement in the 60s. If you're really interested, go go ask your uh, your hippie neighbor who was there and t- tell me stories of what it was like. This isn't it. There isn't much to the movie from a directorial perspective. I am hesitant to give Hopper oh, too much on. credit. Most of the shots were in focus well, it's Laszlo and, Kovacs, and lit. But, okay, Look that's, at Dennis that's, Hopper. It, that guy can't fucking find his own face. The fact that they exposed film onto uh, celluloid is amazing. No, the film doesn't operate as a work of an auteur. Hey, the man had a lot of grass to smoke and, and, and a huge responsibility <laughs> a with the, uh, <laughs> the uh, $200,000 that he was giving. Hey, the, Grandpa, uh, with the, uh, <laughs> the 60s. Or, hey, you got any good um, grass? Like I said, I don't think I don't think Hopper did really great work. Even even his tripped out performance in Apocalypse Now, I don't think Hopper does his best work until he's sober. I mean, it's 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 kind of ironic that he actually skipped the sir, 70s. Sir, sir, your honor, your honor, your honor. He is not his acting abilities and his further acting roles after this movie are not on trial here. I call for relevance. Overruled. I, it's part of the. It's part of the argument of this. No, movie. I overrule you. <laughs> well, you can't do that. Get the fuck out of my courtroom. <laughs> Get the That's bailiff. Put him gavel. in handcuffs. Um, can we move into closing statements, <laughs> Steve Kruger, the prosecutor? We're going to move into your closing statement. My closing sir. statement is two words: fuck this movie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> That's three words. No, I would like to close by saying that I speak for those who have no voice. For those who are afraid, afraid of the wrath that would befall them if they spoke the truth that this movie is a pile of shit. Let me be your voice. Let me be your hero. Too long has the cinematic abortion claimed influence over the film nerd. I shall set you free of this abomination. I am here to cleanse you of your suffering. <laughs> the motherfucking end. Now, if you're listening to the podcast, pause and get ready for two and a half hours of Kyle not putting periods at the end of sentences. And three, two, one. <laughs> no one is asking you to view this movie as The Godfather or Citizen Kane or even Putney Swope. Now, we've obviously talked a lot about context, so let me go back again to its own cinematic merits. I looked for some reviews of this film, which are out there, and it's amazing, if not uh, unsurprising, that there's so much contextual analysis of this film that it's often not discussed simply on its own merits. Presenting the counterculture movement. 
the hippie movement that was part of that, the commune living, et cetera, that was particular, has always been fraught with danger. It can come off as cartoonish. It's either by some older studio type of the day pandering to a young audience or kids that are way too proud of their hipness. This is told from an insider's perspective even though Hipper, uh, Hopper was way over 30 by this point and shouldn't have been able to go to hippie meetings uh, as not being trusted as, as over 30. It is, but, it, I, but I think it's perhaps why this movie may have the, the perfect perspective. I only think it missteps once or twice in terms of falling into to cartoon hippie depiction. And that's in retrospect. At the time, I think this thing rang true as can be to the initiative, <laughs> and I don't think they saw one false step in it. And even looking back with all, our all-knowing eyes, Jesus I think Christ! Hold off. on, I'm interrupting. Steve, are you okay? <laughs> I'm all right. I did some cocaine. <laughs> I was gonna say, I did. I, Dennis Hopper's corpse and I are doing some cocaine. Sorry, this cocaine has been through Neil Young, and it's it's been stepped on by Neil Young's sinus cavities. It's a little, it's a little rough. Sorry. All right, but let's let's take a breather here, Steve. I really I'm worried about your well-being here. Are you okay? I'm doing fine. I'm just worried that Kyle's going to have to start again and I'm going to have to endure more yeah, grandstanding. We'll, we'll have to do this again. Kyle will have to start from the beginning. <laughs> it's the opening of his closing statements. Uh, Kyle, wrap up your um, closing statements. I think it still comes off as an honest betrayal of the movement of the culture wars still being waged today in many ways, of the newfound drug experimentation with its component parts of euphoria and paranoia, with, with the the progressive and experimental thoughts that were going on, it's a wonderful time capsule of a movie with few false notes. It's told in a rough-and-tumble cinema verite style that is mixed with a sort of experiential affectation designed to reflect a high or a trip to match the audience's trippy frame of mind, and that is an idea that is, well, groovy, man. At its worst, it's aimless and boring sometimes. That's at its worst. And once in a while, gets a little cartoonish in its hippie depiction when they're explaining like what write-on means or whatever. But the experiment of let's put a camera on our bikes and film what we come up with is often going to produce some inconsistency. That's the experiment of it. And I'll take the good with the bad. It contains a legitimately funny performance by Jack Nicholson, who was born into a movie star before our eyes, a new and important kind of movie star. And we haven't really talked about the soundtrack, but it is important that this movie, along with a couple others of the day, were bringing the soundtrack of pop music into the movies. And it's easy to make fun of Born to the Wild nowadays, but at the time, this it, it I, and, and even hating that song and having heard it for the last 40 years, I still kind of got a, a, a thrill when they when when it, when it first played. Um, so I want to go out on um, let me not speak anymore, and let me go out on 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 Steve Kruger's favorite person, Pauline Kale. Um, which kind of kind of wraps up both contextually and uh, on its own merits um, the the positives of this movie. And I was actually surprised. I was kind of really curious what you know. Kale had no problem criticizing uh, you know and, and slaughtering Sacred Cow. So I was kind of curious what she did think of this movie. And this is written. You know, she would famously only see movies once and then write about them and then maybe years later write about them again. And, and this is one of her retrospective uh, of entries about this movie. The picture, a road movie that's also a pop mythology ballad movie, expressed the primitive religious element in the hippie movement. White and Billy are long-haired Christ figures and the trigger-happy um, 
squares are out to get them. The movie's sentimental paranoia obviously rang true to a large young audience's vision. In the late 60s, it was cool to feel that you could not win. The film was infused with an elegiac sense of American failure. It had a psychedelic feel to it. The landscapes had a dazzling texture. The music gave the sluggish scenes a pulse. The film became a ritual experience. It was a downer that young audiences wanted. They puffed away at it. Hopper became a culture hero. Nicholson, who's very funny, became a star. Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Five years later, six, it seems like a lifetime, oh God, at least the main area. The kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something, maybe not. He's quoting something that has but nothing no explanation, to do with the movie. No it's mix not of even words or music movie. or memories can touch the sense of knowing that you were there and alive and in that corner of time in the world, whatever it meant. There was madness in any direction at any hour. And I think that was the handle, the sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Easy Rider, along with a few other movies, some that you mentioned, Medium Cool, the Woodstock documentary, captured that moment. I'd like to read a passage from a book uh, called Moby Dick. Uh, so <laughs> fasten your seatbelts. Uh, call me Ishmael. I hate this fucking fish. I'm going to get it. And then I die. The end. Wait, did Steve Did Steve already make his closing remarks? Who can fucking keep track? <laughs> this will be a little different from my normal verdict in that I know you guys have given your closing arguments, but I still feel like there's a little discussion to be had, and I may be able to be swayed both ways still. I have been making some extra notes just in case I get uh, another platform to, to raise them. He read The Great Gatsby aloud word for word. <laughs> and then um, what, what other quotes did he have? You know, Hunter S. Thompson used to write uh, The Great Gatsby out word for word for practice. That's right. Or he also did Hemingway. I think he would just uh, rewrite Hemingway book. Um, I wanted to know what it, what it felt like to write a great novel. Well, you could just read it. I don't know why you have to write it. It's <laughs> just your fingers pushing a keyboard. You know, I always thought... Um, this could actually be appropriate to the podcast. This actually might be an interesting one to revisit. I always thought uh, Gus Van Sant got a lot of flack for doing Psycho. And I always thought it was would be awesome as a director to direct another f- director's film shot for shot to get into the mind of that director. Like a, like a, like a, a musician playing someone's song. No, totally. I think the criticism of Psycho was misplaced. It was a, actually a really cool experiment. He just failed miserably at it. And the only reason he yeah. failed was because... It's almost like he went out of his way to cast the exact wrong people in each of the Yeah, roles. it wasn't well cast. Yeah. Yes. And I thought that's a really cool idea. I remember in film school, we were given 30 minutes of raw footage, and we were to edit it down, and I loved seeing how different people edited it. So Yours, pro- your, yours probably looked a lot like the acid trip from Easy Rider, right, right, Kruger? Because you're a big fan of that kind of Oh, that little stupid editing. thing they would do where they would up they <laughs> That would brings up-cut me to my first scene. point, was, was the transitions. <laughs> this is perfect. Oh, Those transitions so felt annoying. so, like, film school-y. Uh, and and really kind of purposeless. I read somewhere that it was supposed to be. It was supposed to indicate what it was like to be on LSD, and reality is melding from one moment to the next. But it just felt really sort of film schooly and bad. I think it was an offshoot of the French New Wave, right? It, now these American filmmakers were trying to do crazy stuff, like was happening in France in movies. This this was you know part what? of the American French New Wave. Enough with the French New, New wave. wave. Enough. That's all I have to say. Enough. <laughs> all right. Just we'll talk enough. about German Expressionism next. Okay, so the other thing, okay, the big thing that my first note on this movie was 
and, and neither of you brought this up, but isn't it just also a little quaint? It was interesting to think about how I would have received this movie had I been, you know, 20 years old in 1969 and this movie came out and I, it would have maybe blown me away. But there's also the part of me that would wonders if I always kind of would have seen through its sort of silliness. Because this notion, of, and it's come up before, it came up with Blade Runner, this notion of movies that may or may not be dated you know, uh, that don't maybe feel as prescient or as relevant as they did when they were first released. And whether or not that is a reason alone to put a movie in movie jail, um, it's hard. It's hard for a movie to age. You know, the number of movies that ha- remain ageless, you can probably count on two hands. Um, and so the, the question is, is that reason enough to put a, a movie in movie jail? Some of the stuff that hasn't aged well, weed fetishism in movies is just, just makes me roll my eyes now. And there's a lot of that in this. Every time somebody's token on a joint, it's a very pointed, we're token it up, bro, sort of stuff. And also that scene around the campfire plays like a, a pro marijuana PSA where Nicholson is talking about like, well, I don't want to get addicted to something new. It is this like every tired cliche of but of was it a cliche yet don't I don't I'm not sure it was I mean it was quickly you know cliches come and go pretty quickly you could you could be tired of this movie the year after it because there'd been so much about it you know and you had even better movies that explored it but I just don't know if it was if it, it tipped it over into cliche that's the quite question yet. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it, it wasn't was- you know Let's move into a topic that I don't feel like came up at all, or maybe briefly in uh, the topic that I don't feel like was discussed uh, before was Nicholson. When he shows up, he breathes so much life into this movie. The second he shows up on screen at 45 minutes in, he's kind of head and shoulders above everybody. And it's one of those rare cases that I can only think of one other one, which was Jack Black and High Fidelity, where... A guy shows up on screen and you're literally watching a superstar born into existence on screen, which, you know, that's a pretty powerful um, place to have in history for Easy Rider, regardless I, of I do not else. disagree. I, the, the movie begins at minute 45 when there's an actual interesting character that shows up and then then he fucking dies. Yeah, I had forgotten that. And here's my other question. He gets beaten so badly that they kill him, whereas the other two in the very next scene don't have a mark on them, even though we were led to believe that the guys with the baseball bats were just showering blows down on all three of them. And yet in the very next scene, they seem okay. Peter's Fonda's a little upset that Nicholson was killed, but they seem to get over it rather quickly. I found that a little bit strange. They're right on. We're, they're right on to Karen Black and the other prostitute, and on to the the drug-addled montage in New Orleans. So, I mean, in wrapping up here, I mean, I think the big question is. My own response to this movie was: it's quaint, it's dated. Many of the scenes don't play out as well as they might have played out in 1969. Um, But is that reason enough to put a movie in movie jail, given the sort of undeniable significance that this movie had? Now, Kyle touched on this a little bit, but it can't be overstated how literally this movie gave birth to the 70s, which I think a lot of people agree is the best decade in American movies. And the reason was this movie came out at the same time as all these major studio heads had these enormous sort of box office flops that were basically sort of old school old-style Hollywood filmmaking. They all flopped, and so all of these studio executives basically threw their hands up in the air and started writing blank checks to young filmmakers. And I think that is obviously a huge reason why the next decade gave us some of the greatest movies ever. So its significance is is hard to deny. Um, 
Now, the same thing could be said about the movie Rhinestone that starred Sylvester Stallone. That was a bomb that um, his next movie was supposed to be Beverly Hills Cop. And they said, you're done. Get out of here. Um, and that gave birth to the 80s super comedy, the the buddy comedy, the R-rated um, body Eddie Murphy-esque comedy. Oh, I mean, interesting. The, so you're saying well, we, that we Rhinestone don't, we don't, is responsible for Beverly Hills Cop? I think so. I, I But do, do we... <laughs> I mean, there's a case to be made for that. You're not wrong. I mean, but that's a circuitous route. Should we sit around and say how great, how important Rhinestone is? <laughs> I kind of want to. <laughs> I, I just like to say that in, in this episode, in, in this case, I have taken us to Laura Flynn Boyle and Rhinestone. I, I, I really think the, t- the scale should be tipped a little bit just because of my references. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you really want to win this one, Kruger. Kruger really wants this one. All right. Well, let, let's stop. Down. I'm going to go ahead and offer my verdict. And it was a complicated verdict to give. I, I almost look at this movie as if, you know, there was a trunk in the attic that held all of the American movies of the last 100 years and you were just digging through it and you found Easy Rider at the bottom, you might throw it in as a sort of curiosity. It doesn't hold up as a single, as a singular viewing experience, I would argue, but its effect on the medium and American movies in general is is hard to deny. That's why I'm not going to put it in movie jail, but I am going to retire it to a retirement community to die of natural causes. Uh. No, it either goes to jail or goes free. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what country you're from. Some sort of. Uh, didn't you go to college in in um, Oregon? Yeah, that's a very Oregonian thing to do. Hey, man, I just don't want to hurt your mellow. But you know, like, just, <laughs> no, this is this is the swift hand of justice. And by swift, it's listening to Kyle read Pauline <laughs> Kale quotes for well, you half know what, an hour. Counsel, you can go through the <laughs> you can go through the appeals process, and I can see you in this courtroom in in six months. But that is my verdict, and we have a creative system here. So yes, in answer to your question, I can send a defendant to a retirement community to die a natural death. That is that is my verdict. I am finding for the defense of Easy Rider. This court is adjourned, gentlemen. Thank uh, you. You were swayed by the claptrap of uh, Mr. Mr. Boinheimer and his uh, right fine speeches. I call for a mistrial. <laughs> <laughs> Movie Core. Movie Core.